Luke chapter 14, we pick up in verse 7. And in verse 7, you know, we've kind of been in like chapters like 11 through 13. It seems like for like six months or, or longer. But now that we've come to, to chapter 14, is a totally different ball game. Things have uh, changed a bit. Jesus has now uh, opened up this passage by beginning a series of um, dialogues with the Pharisees, and thus far it's been you know, really a monologue. But he has been invited into a feast, um, and, and he has got some remarks about this. And as we looked at the passage last week, what we uh, have, have seen is that Jesus is very generous in um, giving the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and really anybody, anybody at all who would, who would seek to hear him, uh, he's given them so many chances. What we, what we saw is that last week is really a, a repeat of what has been done again and again and again and again throughout the Gospel of Luke. There's kind of been these cycles that have taken place. And so uh, no one could come to the section of, of Luke 14 that we looked at last week and be like, well, you know, Jesus never really gave them a chance. Like he, there was never really an opportunity for them to really respond. He has been very patient. He has been kind in leading them in inviting them in. Uh, so much so that you see that when he poses this question about about healing on the Sabbath, he's posed that question before. Uh, but but then when he speaks to the Pharisees, he doesn't tell them, "Oh, you idiots! You guys, you should know by now that this is what's going on." Instead, he appeals to that that part of them that would be generous. He says, "I know you guys. I know that if you really think about it, you you really are going to connect the dots here and care because." If, if your uh, donkey fell into the pit, you guys are going to help him out. So all I'm saying is, can we not help out this, this person as well? Because if God loves animals, then he clearly also loves people, and, and this person is someone we should help out. And so he's kind of uh, opening that door to, again to invite them in, to be generous to them. Uh, and, and that's important because he certainly has... Uh, very um, distinct words for them as he moves throughout the text. He doesn't just take these opportunities to just slam them, but he, uh, he opens the door with gentleness so that way when he does need to be rigid, when he does need to uh, draw a clear distinction, he is able to. He is able to speak that truth into the hearts of mankind. And so what we saw here is that Jesus is uh, going into this situation. He's at this, uh, he's at this meal as um, we're told in verse 1. He goes to the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And, and as he goes in, they're watching him. They're keeping an eye on him. And of course, it seems like they've planted this guy who's got this medical issue there. Uh, and Jesus engages with them. He brings healing to this man. And he, he gives us a speech to the, the Pharisees about responding to uh, it, um, to the compassion uh, or responding with compassion to this individual. This is how we ought to operate with um, God's character. And, and if you uh, remember from the previous passages where Jesus is healing on the Sabbath, he's, he's almost making the case, as we've said, that the Sabbath is the most appropriate day for someone to be healed. Because it's, it's of course, God's desire to bring um, wholeness to the, to the person, uh, to remove that brokenness. There's not a more appropriate day than that day where God has given us to rest, to provide physical rest, but ultimately to provide spiritual rest. And this is what Jesus is doing again as he opens up this passage. He invites them to be compassionate here. 
Uh, but again, there's that resistance of pride. You saw that in those opening verses, one through six, that Jesus speaks and he gives them an opportunity to respond, but they don't say anything the entire time. He asks these questions, but no one says anything. They would condemn themselves if they had answered in a way that uh, would have um, given a positive answer to Jesus' question. And so they think it better to remain silent, to not speak. Uh, and we're told there that this is their posture. They could not reply to these things, not because they couldn't think of anything to say. The scribes and Pharisees were very opinionated and had plenty of things to say, but they didn't want to say anything. And so as they move out of that, Jesus is speaking to um, kind of this, this ruler of the Pharisees and this group of Pharisees and the people who are watching him. And now he turns to the guests of this meal. We move into this next section in verse 7. And as he makes his way into the house, as he sees everyone kind of jostling around, uh, Luke writes these things for us. Now, he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor. So his teaching springboards directly out of seeing this happen, this pridefulness of the Pharisees, their unwillingness to respond. And then he sees the rest of the guests kind of jostling around, trying to find their place. Uh, Luke tells us that they're looking to choose places of honor. Um, and, and so he, he says, I'm going to share a parable with the, these people. Now, I want you to catch something here. The opening of this, this previous section in verse 1 is that Jesus goes into dine in the house of the ruler of the Pharisees. And what does it say? They were watching him carefully. He makes his points, and then they can't respond. They don't say anything. Right? Now we come to the next section in verse 6. And he tells a parable, he's beginning to tell a parable, because why? He noticed how they chose the places of honor. It's flipped now. Now Jesus says, if you don't want to respond, then I'm going to be in the place where I am watching you carefully. I'm going to be observing what you're doing. I'm giving you the opportunity to respond, and now you're, you're not going to be the one to judge me. I'm going to look there and see how you're operating, and I'm going to give you targeted, direct uh, instruction on how you can, again, repent. <laughs> like, he just, he, he doesn't use it as a trap. He's using it to communicate, like, this is another opportunity for you to change, another opportunity to invite them into uh, true life. And so, uh, they have uh, make their way. Jesus watches the guests rush to claim these honored seats. Uh, this is very familiar, as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke thus far. Uh, th this behavior is very typical of the Pharisees. Luke records for us back in chapter 11, uh, you recall Jesus shares these words with the Pharisees to their face. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. So he's already like, this is not new information for them. He's like, you guys, I've already given you some warnings about this, right? Uh, I've already spoken to you about this. Uh, Matthew records it for us this way in verse uh, chapter 23, verse 6, he says, uh, Jesus speaking, says that the Pharisees love the places of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. So they're all about this, like, this title and this recognition. Uh, they, they love to have the best seats to be visible, to be seen. 
And so uh, Jesus begins to roll out this parable based on the practice of seating guests uh, at tables by rank or distinction. Typically, the way that this would happen would be uh, the, the master of the house would, uh, or the host of the feast would, would be seated at the center of the table. Uh, sometimes it was a, a long table, right? You, probably you guys have all seen the, the, um, you know, the, the famous Last Supper painting where Jesus is at the center and all the disciples are kind of there uh, strewn out. Uh, in, some, um, in some situations, the table was kind of more designed like a U-shaped situation. You've been in like one of those awkward conferences like at work, right? And it's like the U-shaped table so everyone can see each other because like it's weird to put a circle in a room, right? This is kind of the idea. And then uh, there's kind of two long tables, but Jesus is sitting at the head and there's someone on his left and someone on his right. Uh, and then there would be like a line of all the people. So, so everyone's kind of jostling to figure out like where is the master of the feast going to be and where can I sit, where can I be? And, and Jesus gives this word of instruction a word of exhortation to this group of people in verse 8. When you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. So Jesus' word to them is at a wedding feast, don't go to the seat of honor, right? That means you're not sitting in the host seat, but you're sitting to his right or left. Right? You're looking for these more prominent positions. Now, he rolls this out in the form of a parable. Remember, he's speaking to people in a room that are actually at a meal here. But he's speaking to them, in, Luke tells us, in the form of a parable. For the Jewish mind, a wedding feast would have been associated with the kingdom of God. And what has Jesus been obsessively speaking about across the entirety of the Gospel of Luke? The kingdom of God. Just nonstop talking about the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, he has been uh, speaking about how the, the kingdom of God is like a, a mustard seed that grows up into a tree. He's, he's been talking about how uh, there's like a narrow door. He's been using all of these different illustrations and analogies to communicate this, how important it is uh, to find your entrance into the kingdom of God. And again, now he's speaking in a practical sense so that way they can apply these things in the present. They're actually at a feast but speaking of a feast to come, a wedding feast. And, and as he does so, he tells them, don't sit, don't pick your own place, don't sit in these uh, particular seats. He says, uh, if that is the case, if you find your own seat in the place of honor, uh, he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. So the picture is this, you're sitting there in this kind of uh, main seat, right, waiting for the host to come and sit next to you, and he walks up there with uh, the actual guest who's supposed to be in that seat, and he's going to be like, hey, like, I, you know, thanks for coming. Uh, I actually am saving this for this other person. Can you get up and move? Now, what's not going to happen, and Jesus makes this very plain, he's not going to say, okay, everybody move down one, right? You're not getting, you're not getting like the, the like, third place or the fourth place or the fifth like this isn't this isn't like okay like let me rearrange everybody he says you're going to get up with shame because everybody's seated and the only seat that's left is the very very end you're at the very very end you're far away so everyone is going to watch you get up in this 
very embarrassing public situation, and you're going to become the center of attention, which you apparently wanted to be, but in the opposite way in which you wanted it. Now you're being publicly demoted in front of everybody, and you're being invited to take the lowest position. You're the furthest away. And so Jesus says it's better to adopt a position of humility and be invited to a better seat than to appoint yourself. This is how he phrases it in verse 10. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he, must, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. So Jesus gives the opposite advice as to what is being uh, what is happening here there instead of jostling for the the and jockeying for the place of honor he says you just go and sit at the lowest place just go there and by taking the the last place the host's reaction is going to be totally different he's going to come to you and be like oh like i really wanted you to be up here by me why don't you why don't you come let, let me escort you up here and and i'm going to put you in in this place of honor you're going to come to a better seat so that rather than being shamed in this public way, there's uh, this honoring that takes place uh, in front of those who sit at the table. Now, as you look at it, because we are deceitful little creatures here, I know everybody is just like, we're all taking last place, so that way we could get that glory, and just be like, what are you doing down here, right? Well, there's only a couple seats up there, right? So the reality, the reality is this, like, you might not get that, that seat, you might not get that seat. So the goal, Jesus is telling us here, is not to just pick the lowest seat so you can receive honor in front of others, but instead, Jesus' emphasis is to have humility, to act with this humble attitude. It's the best option. Jesus says our status should not be determined by ourselves. We don't show up and say, you know, I'm going to sit down here because I know that Jesus is going to come in here and then he's going to pick me up and be like, hey, let's go. I don't know why you're all the way down here. That's not how it's going to go. That's not the way that he's communicating this. He does say that you're going to be honored in the presence of all who sit at the table with you. But this kind of raises for us the, the typical and tricky issue of false humility and entitlement. Because the reality is, is that like everybody's happy to take the lowest seat if you know that like you're in the lottery to get the, you know, the higher seats. But what happens when you, when you get uh, passed over for those seats, it's really revealed that you actually weren't humble at all. You actually weren't humble. You were actually expecting to be chosen, and you wanted the honor. Your goal was not to, uh, to act in humility. Your goal was to be honored in front of others. Your goal is to, to operate in such a way that you would be seen as great. But Jesus is, is pitching us a completely different thing. 
He's saying that you should go and sit at that place willing to, to serve and sit there with full confidence that, that this is a place where you are loved and cared for, that you are welcome at the table, that this is a place in the feast that you are able to uh, uh, enjoy. Too often what happens is that we are like, okay, well, I'll be fine. I'll go sit at the, the end of the table. But as soon as you start seeing other people get promoted, then, right, then all of a sudden you're comparing. Like, I don't know why they got to go up there. Like, it doesn't make any sense. I've been working way harder. I've been putting it in the hours. Right? I've, been, I've been doing all these things. Right? Or, or you start to think, well, I really belong up there. And I don't know why uh, the master of the feast is not promoting me up there. This is where I'm supposed to be. And it reveals, really, that there's actually a deeper issue, a heart issue going on. There's a, 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 a situation that exists within the heart that we don't really believe that the master of the feast really cares about us at all. If he really cared about me, he would be putting me up at the front. He, if he really cared about me, he would put me next to him so that we, we, could, we could speak, we could discuss, we could enjoy the meal together. We could have conversation so that way other people could see how valuable that I am to him. These are the things that, that are the secrets of our heart that we don't say out loud. Everyone's willing to be like, oh yeah, I'll go sit at the, be- the, the, the lowest table. Because you, you secretly are thinking like, well, they're going to come get me and I'm going I'm to get up to the front. But Jesus puts it, puts it this way. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. He says, if you are doing that, even if it's the secret of your heart, you will be humbled. You'll be humbled in the fact that uh, you'll get passed over, thinking like, oh, okay. Because God sees the heart. He knows what's going on. And he says, whoever humbles himself will be exalted. The person who least expects that they are going to go up there, that's who God is going to uh, elevate. The person who's just like, I'm just here having a great time. I'm just happy to be here. I'm happy to just like have this place at the table. Like I can't even believe the generosity that I'm able to attend this. Like, th- like that person who's just like obsessed and having the most wonderful time enjoying what the master of the feast has provided, that person, the Lord's gonna be like, yeah, why don't you come up here? <laughs> you know, he, he's, he's explaining to us that there's a humility that, that is required of us. Now, this is something that sits against this pridefulness of the Pharisees who, in the previous passage, refused to recognize God's inbreaking kingdom. Remember, as God would come and he would promise that there would be these miracles that the, uh, the deaf would hear and, and the blind would see and the lame would walk, this person who has this uh, situation with, uh, with dropsy, uh, you know, or edema, as we talked about last week, this kind of swelling, this medical issue, they are healed. This would have been a sign of the inbreaking kingdom of God. This would have been a sign that God is doing a new thing, that he is bringing his kingdom as he said he would. And instead of being like, oh, great, it seems like it's the time, they're saying like, we're not going to say anything. We're going to try to pass this guy off. We're going to hope he just comes in the door and goes out the door and we're just done with him. They don't want to interact with him. But God honors humility. They refuse to be humble. They refuse to recognize that that God is is working in a way that they did not expect. 
Now, this theme of, of God working and exalting the humble, it's ever-present throughout Scripture. But I'll give you uh, two places from Luke that we've looked at thus far. Um, in the very opening pages of the Gospel of Luke, the mother of Jesus, Mary, in Luke chapter 1, verse 52, in this, uh, in this wonderful, whoops, wonderful song that she sings, the Magnificat, uh, in Luke 1.52, she exclaims, you know, as the Lord is speaking through her, she says that he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. So there's this, this uh, reversal that is happening, this reversal that is happening when Jesus comes. And this is the message of the kingdom of God that, what does he say in the, uh, in, in the previous passage of, uh, of Luke chapter 13, verse 30? Some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. So he keeps talking about these like reversals. You also see Jesus speak to this uh, in contrast in Luke chapter 6 as he explains the, this idea of blessings and uh, uh, warnings or woes. Uh, he's speaking to um, disciples, Pharisees. He says in Luke chapter 6, verse 21, Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. So that's in the, in the blessing part, right? If you are hungry now, don't worry, you're going to be satisfied. If you weep now, don't worry, you're going to laugh. But then by contrast, he says, if you don't receive the kingdom of God, if you don't want to welcome what I'm bringing, he says in verse 25, woe to you who are full now. So it's the reversal of what he said in verse 21, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. So he's, he's been saying this, he's been kind of trying to introduce this and bring people along. But there's this, this a trajectory that we are ought to, to be on with him to say that humbling yourself is the way to life. I leave you with the one major passage that we've discussed so many times. Jesus says the key to this is that we ought to, and he invites everyone to not um, protect yourself, but to offer yourself up to him. He says, if you lose your life for my sake, you will find it, right? So there's the reversal. If you give up your life, if you let go of control, if you say, I'm going to be found in Jesus, you will find life. But he says, by contrast, if you seek to protect your life, if you seek to hold on to it so tightly, if you seek to say, I'm in charge, I'm going to do what I want to do, he says, you're going to lose it. In trying to defend that which you think uh, is most precious to you, you're going to lose it. It's going to be gone. And so this call this reversal, this call to humility is something that colors what he's speaking to the, the Pharisees, but that he's speaking to all of us. It's the message that he calls us to. Now, the thing about Jesus is this. He never, ever, ever asks us to do things that he himself has not done. He's never asked us to do that. He always goes before us and walks that path and then asks us to follow him, right? We are following Jesus wherever he goes and doing whatever he wants us to do. That's our job. That's our goal. We are laser focused on following him. And as he has communicated this, that the kingdom of God is coming, lose your life for my sake so that you will find it, he was willing himself 
to put his money where his mouth is. He was willing to make that choice before he asked us to do the same. He is the greatest example of humility that we have because he humbled himself. You're going to want to turn here because this is like one of the most epic passages in all of scripture. I know I say this every single time I come to this, but Philippians chapter 2, the great Christ hymn, right? You just like bracket it, highlight it, sticky note it. Like so much of, of how we live as Christians is, is born out of this. But here's how Paul describes this situation in chapter 2 of Philippians, verse 5. He says, have this mind among yourselves, right? So basically he's saying, don't think like you're thinking already. You need to think a different way. So don't say, well, that doesn't make any sense to me. He says, yeah, it's not. It's not going to make sense to you the way that you're thinking. You need a new mind. You need to think about a different way. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. So he enabled to give it to us, has given it to us. And then he describes the work of Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? So he's like, he's God, Jesus is God. And he didn't have to do anything. And he, he didn't have to care about anybody else. But he says in verse 7, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So he put off what was deserved. He deserved all glory, all honor, and he put that off to come in the likeness of mankind in the form of a servant, and then was obedient to go through these steps to make his way to the cross, is what Paul tells us. He follows through. He doesn't come down and say, don't you guys know who I am? You guys are idiots. He comes down and lives in obedience to God, in gentleness and care, in invitation to mankind. And he faces death on the cross, verse 8. Now, here's the reversal. He humbled himself, right? And what does the scriptures tell us? Humble yourself before God and he will exalt you. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So he, he has gone before us. He has humbled himself. He has accomplished the task. And he has been exalted by God. And so when he says, humble yourselves, go sit at the lowest place and God will exalt you. He's speaking from experience. He's speaking with, with a, a perspective in mind. He's not just saying this empty. He says, this is, this is how it's going to go. So he calls on us to follow in his footsteps, to show humility in every aspect, every area of our lives, to have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. Now, the pushback, of course, the fight against this is that we don't want to do that because in order to do that, it requires taking Jesus seriously. And as he said, losing our lives or our identities for his sake. And we really want to protect our identities. That's who we are, right? That's, that's who we are, our identities, our profile picture, our, like how, how we're perceived by other people. 
when Jesus sees people jockeying around at the table, this is because where they sit says something about them. That's like the social media profile of their day. Where are you sitting at the table? Right? Everyone's looking around like, oh, interesting. Got promoted this time. Yeah, he's up a little bit further. Must be in good standings with those people. Everyone's jockeying around the table. And where you sit says something about who you are. Proximity to the host. It tells us, and it tells others, that we're important to him. This guy, he really wants me to sit up here. I'm important. Thinks I'm the best. And the more time that we get with him, the more he's going to speak with us. He's not going to, you know, those people at the, at the end of the table, they're out of earshot. They can't really hear our discussion. We're talking about, you know, high and mighty things over here. If they were more important, they would be promoted and they would be here. But the reality, the reality is this. All flawed thinking. This is all flawed thinking. Both for uh, the Pharisees in this situation with Jesus, but for you and I to, to not want to give up our identities, to, to want to jockey for attention at the table, to be in a situation where we humble ourselves and then act in entitlement when other people get promoted. And we'll be like, I can't believe God is using that person. I can't believe he's like, like, doesn't he know? I've been working so hard. I've been growing in the scriptures. I'm praying all the time. You know, we're like, sometimes we develop this attitude, but it's all flawed thinking. It's all incorrect because we've, we've wrongly assessed the situation. And here's the number one reason why we are, we're human and we're selfish and we don't remember what God is like. Now, our perspective is too small. The reality is this. It doesn't matter where you sit at the table because where you sit at the table and our stresses and relating to how we're sitting at the table are based on those things of wanting to let other people know that we're cared for and loved and that we are important to the host, that we can't be a part of the conversations. But the reality is this. Jesus is God. He doesn't lack any resources. So he's not going to run out of, of time. He's not going to run out of things to uh, give to us so that way we can enjoy him and serve him. He's not going to run out of love. He's got plenty of love. God is love, like he's literally love. So he's not going to run out of that. And, uh, um, he's, and so we don't need to be in competition with one another because when we recognize that he has an abundance, a fullness, and gives to everyone equally with fullness, you realize like, oh, I'm not trying to like make sure that I get enough because like everyone has enough. And right now, like the reality is, is if you, if you really, if you really were like, I really want to know God more, like you'd be spending a lot more time honestly in your heart, right? Knowing God, because he is willing to give you more than you're willing to receive. You're, you know, we're like a lot more stubborn. We're totally not willing to receive all that he wants to give us. We want to say that we are, but, but he's willing to just like flood us with way more. And so he's not running short on time or resources or love. He's got plenty of time for everybody at the table. And he, and he can make the feast last for as long as he wants. He can get up and walk around. He can talk to everybody. No one's going to run out. He can, he can make sure that everybody has exactly what he needs. We're not in competition with one another. 
when he accomplished his work of humility at the cross, he was exalted. And what did he do? He finished that work. He said at the cross, it's finished, it's completed, and then he sat down. The book of Hebrews tells us this in the very opening verses regarding Jesus. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So he does his work. He humbles himself. God has exalted him. He makes purification for sins. And then what does he do? He sits down. He rests. He is now at the table waiting. He accomplished that work of making purification for sins. Hebrews chapter 10 goes on to explain that uh, Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For single, by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. So he humbled himself. He went to the cross, paid for our sins, make purification for our sins through that single offering. God has exalted him through the resurrection. And he has sat down and is waiting. Now, in my mind, I kind of am thinking, thinking this. There's got to be a moment, right? Because we're not, we're not here yet in the, in the Gospel of Luke. But there's got to be a moment where he's saying this to the, to, the, to the Pharisees and he's replaying these things in his mind as he sits down with the disciples at the Last Supper. He's there at the table again, feasting with them through a situation that he has been through so many times growing up, but this time flipping the script and explaining that there is new meaning, new purpose this time around. And as he had gathered the disciples there at that table, he probably looked around and realized, like, you're able to be seated with me here right now, but there is that marriage feast that I really want you to be at. I really want you to be at that future feast in the kingdom of God. And right now, you're not, you're not invited. You're not welcome on the basis of your standing now. You can see this now, and I'm sure that, that took extra meaning as he, as he held up the bread in the cup and explained that this would be his body broken and his blood shed. And explained to them that this is a new covenant, a new promise. And he made that promise to them that like, we're not gonna, I'm not going to eat of this again until we have this feast together. So there's that, that invitation, that future that he's welcoming them into. But he had to continue in that act of humility to go to the cross so that way they would have that invitation to make it to the final feast. And through his work at the cross, as we trust in Christ for salvation, isn't that how we're described? Isn't that how we're welcomed into the family of God? This is how Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 2. 
But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made, uh, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So he explains this whole thing about Christ making purifications for sins. And then he says this in verse 6. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He says, you're at the table. If you trust in Christ for salvation, you're going to be welcomed in. and You're going to be seated with Christ in heavenly places. But there are those who resist. Right? The Pharisees here are resisting. They are... Um, not, they're, they're, they haven't been responding to Jesus. But again, the, the, the final time that we see this, before we see the actual feast take place, right? Of course, we see this come to its ultimate, um, its ultimate climax in the marriage supper of the Lamb. But before we see that, I want to draw your attention to one final passage just to see the incredible generosity of Jesus. Because there are those who resist. There are those in the story but in the book of Revelation, there's this kind of church that is like, um, they're, they're kind of like the people who don't want to say anything, right? They see Jesus, but they don't want to say anything. And Jesus describes them, it's this church called Laodicea, and, and Jesus de- describes them as like, you know, they're not hot and they're not cold. They're not really like, they're just kind of like, meh. They're not really useful for anything. They're not, they just want to ride the fence. They don't really want to make a decision. They don't want to um, have anything to do with Jesus, but they don't really want to be like, oh, we hate you, right? It's kind of just this weird uh, you know, anomalous situation. And so there's, they're kind of described there. And in Revelation chapter 3, he, he, he shows up there with them in verse 19. And he says, he tells them this, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Right? So he he's shows up and he tells them, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. So he's literally telling them like, I'm, I'm asking you to repent and to change. Like, here's your situation. Here's what's going on. I'm asking you to repent and change. He says, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. He, he doesn't say, like, you guys, I've been trying to tell you for so long. He's still trying to give opportunities here to those who are resistant. He's like, I'm going to keep knocking. So open the door. And if you do open the door, I'm going to come in and I'm going to eat with you. And then he says, uh, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. And he says this, for those who do that, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. And I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. So he's like, if you open the door, we're going to sit down together. That's what he's getting at. We're going to sit down together. And of course, as I said, this culminates in the marriage supper of the Lamb. That ultimate feast that we look forward to where we will see Jesus one day face to face. And no one's going to be worried about where they're sitting. Right? We're all just going to be super pumped to be there. Because there's enough Jesus for everybody. More than enough. We can't even handle all of it. As is. But this is an invitation for us. To not just be a people who are resistant, like the Pharisees, not to be a people who are like, meh, like that sounds cool, but instead to respond, to have our hearts follow in the direction that he's inviting us into, to recognize him as the true king, to follow him into humility, 
and to submit ourselves to him so that he might make us new and renew our minds and give us that mind that he himself had. He keeps his promises and he invites us in. And I invite you to go on that journey with us as we continue to walk forward with our eyes fixed on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith.